Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I'm Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. On today's pod, Warner Brothers' decision to scrap its Wiley e. Coyote movie blew up in its face. How ironic. Then the Wall Street Journal released a list of the best and worst airports in the U.S. And oh boy, Neil and I have some thoughts on it. It's Thursday, November 16th. Let's ride. Neil, some quick housekeeping to start the show today. I'm going to be out tomorrow, which means the return of our wonderful substitute host, Kyle. The show will still be incredible, though. You got Neil here. You'll have Kyle, but there will probably be a few less dad jokes. Also, you all have certainly come through with sending us questions for our special Black Friday episode that we have planned. So keep that up. Neil, any favorites stand out to you so far? Well, there was this one guy who asked us for relationship advice. And I just, you know, Toby and I like to talk about business news. I don't know if we're the most qualified people to talk about relationships and give advice in that domain. But anything else is fair game. Yeah. Our email address is morningbrewdaily at morningbrew.com if you want to ask us anything. I said ask us anything, but I do draw the line at the person who asked for feet pics. That's the line right there. All right, before we start the show, a quick shout out to our sponsor, Brex. I've been holding off on using this pun, Neil, but I think it's time. Please, no. Neil, sometimes you got to Brex yourself before you Rex yourself. Ooh. <laughs> Come on. It totally makes sense if you think about it. Imagine not using Brex to manage your corporate spend. You would wreck yourself. I've thought about it, and I'm still giving you a 4.5 out of 10. So despite Toby's awful pun, you should still check out Brex. Uh, head to Brex.com today. Also today is Red Cup Day at Starbucks, the company's biggest sales day of the year. But when you go to get your holiday reusable cup, you might find that your local Starbucks is closed. And that's because the Starbucks union is staging its biggest walkout yet. Thousands of employees across hundreds of Starbucks locations in the U.S. will go on strike today to protest pay, scheduling, and other issues they've had gripes with for a while. Remember, Starbucks employees kicked off this recent wave of labor organizing when they began to unionize at some stores in 2021. The union and the company have been in a nasty fight since, and it appears that a resolution appears far off. But to take an even broader look at things, this Starbucks walkout shows that hot strike summer is still going strong, even as the weather turns colder. It seems that much of the historic labor unrest of 2023 had settled down after Hollywood employees, automotive workers, and others agreed to new contracts with their bosses recently. But no, it's clear that labor organizing will still be a major theme of the business world going into 2024. Yeah, we're entering cozy strike fall, I guess, sweater strike fall, whatever you want to call it. This decision to strike on Red Cup Day is interesting on a lot of levels because it is a massive sales day for, for Starbucks. Last year, Starbucks actually had its best single sales day ever, even though it uh, employees did stage a walkout. So I do think 
Both of them are almost okay with it because the employees uh, walking out get a lot of publicity because it's such a big day. But then Starbucks is saying, we'll still probably do okay on this on this massive, massive sales day for us. So you're getting kind of PR on both sides of the equation here. And I mean, we're talking about it. So. They're calling it the Red Cup Rebellion. kind of kind of rhymes well. Uh, or a, lot, a lot of good alliteration going on. But yes, just to go back to this Starbucks strike, I mean, uh, there's been this wave of unionization that happened in 2021, started at Buffalo stores, and now 350 of Starbucks's about 9,000 corporate-owned U.S. stores are unionized. That wave had a lot of momentum. It sparked a lot of unionization efforts at a bunch of other retailers, but the wave has kind of trickled down at Starbucks. There's been a change in leadership there. Howard, Howard Schultz gave way to another CEO. But there's this has been very contentious, and labor authorities have found Starbucks uh, in violation of a lot of union-busting efforts. So this seems like it's going to continue into next year. Starbucks baristas are not happy with the way things have been going, and they're in a very contentious uh, rhetorical fight with uh, with management. Yeah, and then so you mentioned at the, the in your intro that also there's some rocky times over at uh, the automotive uh, industry because things are looking especially rocky over at GM. The vote by union members on whether to accept the tentative labor contract that led the UAW to declare an end to its strike is was actually too close to call yesterday. Remember, this was hailed as this big win, especially by Sean Fain, that these historic gains in wage growth and prompted other non-unionized car makers to hike wages uh, as well. But then some veterans actually, when it came down to it, felt like they weren't getting big enough raises in that most of the the new gains were going to newer automotive workers. So all of a sudden, this is looking a little dicey. It still is probably expected to pass. But again, we declared an end to the the strike, but it's it's getting a little dicier than they would expect. Yeah. And then you go to pharmacy chains and pharmacy workers at CVS, Walgreens and uh, well, Rite Aid is now bankrupt, but uh, (laughs) things are not going well over there. Last uh, in the past few weeks, staff there have done this thing they called Farmageddon. I guess union organizers are really good at this branding stuff, but they've also worked out to protest scheduling issues and being overworked. So in that industry, there's been a lot of tumultuous times going on because they're all closing stores and there's a lot of areas in the U.S. that have don't have a local CVS or Walgreens anymore because these chains have closed down. Workers feel like they're overworked and they've also started to protest and walk out. That's been going on this entire summer. There also does not appear to be a resolution in that industry. My favorite union battle going on right now is happening at REI, actually, who has eight unionized stores, but uh, the unionized workers have been claiming the company has been dragging its feet in negotiation. And then basically they said that REI came back to them and say it's throwing off the co-op's vibe by unionizing, essentially. So... Everyone knows the most important thing when it comes to unionization is the vibes, which is just a, a hilarious thing. And what's interesting about REI is it gives off this very progressive vibe. Right. They're a co-op. They give a lot of money to nonprofits. And employees are saying, wait, you're this progressive company, yeah. but you're not recognizing our union. Something is not squaring with that. So these labor battles are going to continue into next year for sure. We can't say they're heating up because it's, it's going into fall now. It's cool. They're cooling down, I guess. All right, Neil, TikTok has finally been banned in Nepal. The decision was made to put the kibosh on everyone's favorite pre-bedtime time waster because, according to the government, it was disrupting social structures in the country. What does that mean exactly? Well, Nepal has instituted strict rules outlining what is considered forbidden content, which includes hate speech, the promotion of sexual exploitation and drugs, fake news, and terrorism-related messages, 
all of which they saw proliferating on TikTok. Now, Nepal is not the first nation to take aim at TikTok. India and Afghanistan both outright banned it years ago, while the US, Australia, Britain, Canada, and New Zealand have all placed restrictions on its use on government devices. But Neil, another ban, albeit in a small market with only 2 million or so total users, opens up this can of worms again. Is TikTok a danger to society, or is Nepal muzzling its citizens by stripping away a platform for free expression? Right. You have a lot of free speech groups saying this is uh, an attack on democratic norms because there were uh, a lot of journalists and anti-government people who use TikTok to express their speech. And they're saying that this is the government cracking down on their, you know, they don't have the First Amendment there, but their right to, to free speech. One of one of uh, the critics of this ban said, if you have a boil on your neck, you don't chop off your neck, your neck. You go after the root cause, which is these particular bad actors on the platform. You don't completely wipe out uh, the entire platform. That said, TikTok is not going to take any real hit from this. It's 2.2 million users in the country, and they have over a billion monthly users around the world. So t this is just kind of a sign that there is growing hostility to TikTok, not just in the U.S., but around the world, especially in Asian countries. I mean, India is the most populous country on earth, and it doesn't have TikTok. Yeah, they, they asked that a while ago, back in 2021. Calls for banning TikTok in the U.S. have kind of slowed a little bit into uh, in the post-summer months, but they're kind of ramping back up as the Israel-Hamas war uh, starts to proliferate and content around that starts to proliferate on the platform. It's also especially timely because more Americans are getting their news on TikTok, which is basically the opposite of the trend we've seen on most other social media sites. Currently, 43% of TikTok users say that they sometimes get their news from the site. Still, there's less likely than people getting news from Twitter or X, so it's not up there with like the, the top, top news sites. But it is interesting to see that it's the only news site trending upwards in terms right. of what people are getting their news from. So again, Nepal is maybe not the biggest market, but the reason why we're talking about it because it is emblematic of a, of a larger theme here. Yeah, I mean, that the number 43% is, is big, but it, what's... You know, when you look at the context of two years ago, that number was just 23 percent yeah. of people getting their news on TikTok. And TikTok used to be known as this music app, this dancing app. And now it is being used as people's definitive news source is a little scary. And I would say that the um, the criticism of TikTok or the, the reason to ban it has moved from beyond it was, uh, you know, your data, Americans' data would be compromised by the Chinese government to instead an argument that China is using it as a propaganda tool because of how many people get their news on TikTok. Mm -hmm. We have these big geopolitical conflicts going on, like the Israel-Hamas war, war in Ukraine. And what China wants is to destabilize the West. Uh, and that is potentially what it's doing. No one can prove that it's pushing its own propaganda or it's tweaking its algorithms to show content that would be destabilizing towards the West or anything like that. But that is the concern. And I think the conversation around TikTok will move from, hey, hey it's hoovering up Americans' personal data to this is a propaganda tool by the Chinese government to influence, uh, you know, to influence public opinion right. in the United States against their own government. It is interesting to juxtapose it with the meeting going on in San Francisco right now where Biden and President Xi are shaking hands and apparently making nice with each other with this global maybe destabilizing agent working in the background. So interesting juxtaposition. Toby, why does Warner Brothers keep shutting down movies after they've been made? Last week, the studio pulled the plug on its upcoming Wiley e. Coyote movie, Coyote vs. Acme, even though it had finished shooting a year ago and was ready to hit the big screen. 
The decision sparked an uproar on social media and became the talk of Hollywood because this is not the first time Warner Brothers has shut down a movie once it had already been finished. It's actually the third time. It recently scrapped both Batgirl and an animated Scooby-Doo movie, even though those had been nearly wrapped up. Following intense backlash, Warner Brothers reversed course this week and said it would shop around Coyote vs. Acme to other studios and streamers, so it may be revived after all. But the question still stands. Why dump a movie that people were excited about and had already been made? Help us understand this. I'll tell you why, Neil, and it comes down to tax breaks. Warner Bros. gets a $30 million tax write-off by not releasing this movie. It also gets to save on the marketing distribution costs. So this is a classic money over art debate. And I hate this, honestly. I think why the outrage is so strong specifically with this movie is that it was, by all accounts, very good. It tested multiple times with the audience in the 90s in terms of audience enjoyments and pre-screening. And then other films that came in that high were Argo, which won Best Picture. So it's up there with a very, very good movie. And no offense to the, the Scoob movie or, or Batgirl, this is a legitimately good film. So it does feel like you are literally sacrificing art for the sake of just $30 million of tax breaks. Well, it's $30 million. It's and these companies aren't exactly doing so hot right now with the push to streaming. So I can understand it from an accounting perspective, but obviously I think it was a bad strategy in the first place. But I'm going to go in a direction that people may not be expecting. Antitrust. So there was a representative from Texas who's been hammering Warner Brothers Discovery for a long time that wants the FTC to look into its strategy of squashing these films because this has been a pattern and review it under anti-competitive practices because it's saying that this is, or this guy Castro from Texas is saying that what Warner Brothers is doing is like burning down a building for the insurance money and it's doing this catch and kill method which is you know a violation of anti-competitive practices. So it, we'll see whether this uh, investigation materializes or anything, but it, you know just squashing a Wiley e. Coyote movie <laughs> yeah. has drawn the attention of lawmakers that's a heck of a headline right there. I think it's so short-sighted, though, because all you're doing as Warner Bros. is deterring future filmmakers from working with you because if there's always that specter of maybe we'll just kibosh, put the kibosh on this movie, then why would you ever want to work with this studio? So he got away with it with Batgirl because, again, that movie was, by all accounts, a complete mess. But when you start uh, axing actually good movies, that's when I think you start to kind of soil your name in the industry. All right, Neil, before I go all Wiley e. Coyote on David's Last Love, let's take a quick break. Welcome back to Neil's Numbers, our Thursday segment where I share three stats from the week's news that will take your breath away. And that is all too relevant to my first number, which is about how long people live in the U.S. A new study showed that men's life expectancy is nearly six years shorter than women, the widest gap in almost 30 years. In 2021, women were expected to live 79.3 years compared to just 73.5 years for men. Now, women around the globe outlive men due to biological factors, so that there's a gap at all isn't surprising. But the size of this gap in the United States is alarming public health experts because it's driven not by biological factors, but things that could be prevented with more intervention, like drug overdoses, homicides, and suicides. COVID also killed a lot more men than women. Toby, this is a pretty sobering stat that brings me back to what you mentioned earlier this week about single women buying homes at a much higher rate than single men. A lot of those single women buying homes are widows because husbands are living significantly shorter lives than their wives. Yeah, this is one number you definitely do not want to see get bigger in, in any sense because, yeah, having life expectancy go down is just 
in the, the age of modern medicine yeah. in in America of all places like that is something that is truly kind of sobering for a lot of people so definitely things have to change obviously COVID played a huge role in this but not a number you want to see expand no there's a lot of countries out there that have a uh, life expectancy of over 80 years old Japan Korea Portugal the UK and also the life expectancy in the United States between men and women is lower than that of Turkey and China yeah. it is it, like you said it is very alarming for this number to be going down down in the year 2023. We need to watch that Blue Zone documentary again that shows you how to live longer, live a better lifestyle. It all came down to gardening. I did watch it, actually. You just got to go out and garden. That's, that, oh, all right, that's Toby the solved right there. this. Toby <laughs> solved this. Okay, my second number is about how AI could revolutionize weather forecasting. A new computer model built by Google and powered by artificial intelligence just wiped the floor with the best forecasting tool we have around. The model, named GraphCast, took less than a minute to make a 10-day forecast compared to the traditional model that took an hour and required a much bigger computer to do it. Then, GraphCast proceeded to outperform that traditional model across 90% of metrics, such as temperature, pressure, wind speed, and humidity. Why does this matter? Well, the way we do forecasting now is very expensive, very energy intensive, because you have to crunch data from buoys, satellites, and weather stations to create a model. But machine learning programs like Google's could drastically improve the accuracy and efficiency of forecasting just by using historical data to predict the future. So just imagine looking at a 10-day forecast that you actually have confidence in. This seems so tailor-made. Weather forecasting seems so tailor-made for AI because there's so many big data sets, so many hidden patterns within that data. And there's a lot on the line if there is any sort of error as well. So you definitely want these models to perform well. I mean, we just saw that unprecedented misforecast of the hurricane that hit Acapulco, Mexico. So this is more relevant than ever. So this is a great use case for AI. I love it. For my final number, let's head to the world of soup because it's soup season after all and nothing embodies Americans' obsession with mass-produced sludge in the colder months like Campbell's Cream of Mushroom Soup. An article from Salon reported that 50% of cream of mushroom sales come between November and January of each year, primarily thanks to the Thanksgiving staple, green bean casserole. This dish has a fascinating history. Campbell's introduced its condensed cream of mushroom soup in 1934 as its first product that could be used both as a soup and a sauce. In 1955, an employee working in its home economics department was tasked with creating a recipe that would appear in a feature for the Associated Press, and she decided on a green bean bake that requires one can of cream of mushroom soup. That recipe was ultimately printed on the side of cream of mushroom soup cans. The name was tweaked from green bean bake to what we all know, green bean casserole, and it took off in popularity. Now, 20,000 American families will make green bean casserole this holiday season, according to Campbell's. I'm one of them, Neil, <laughs> actually. I've eaten this pretty much every year of my life on Thanksgiving or ever since my younger brother could see over the counter because this is what he's tacked with every year. People are running through the kitchen. I'm making the turkey and mashed potatoes. My brother's just dropping the cream of mushroom soup in there it truly is just one of those nostalgics it makes you uh, think about home so it's been a great branding exercise for them it really sure. has and and there's been this maybe people have looked down on this processed soup in this age of organic and you know very natural foods that we should all be eating but i i love this from this one particular food historian lucy long who wrote that while these 
Like mass-produced commercial foods may seem like the antithesis of home-cooked folk foods. They have frequently been incorporated into family and community tradition. Green bean casserole illustrates how such a product can become a meaningful tradition that expresses both regional culture and individual creativity. So she's arguing that we should really celebrate green bean casserole and cream of mushroom as just a part of you know American regional cuisine, even though it may seem to us as as very industrialized and, and part of our mass production capitalist culture. I'm all in on it. It, it, it feels but like... But you don't no, like it. I, no. <laughs> That's the big difference. You like the idea of it more than eating itself. My brother makes it with love, so I like it. All right, everyone. I have in front of me a list of the best and worst airports in the U.S. as ranked by the Wall Street Journal. And, well, I'm just going to read it out, read out the top 10 to you. Number one, Phoenix. Two, Minneapolis. Three, Los Angeles. Four, Atlanta. Five, Detroit, and then six through ten is San Francisco, Houston, Seattle, Las Vegas, Boston. Now, before you roast that list, which we will, believe me, at least hear the methodology first, the journal came up with 30 different factors and divided them into two categories. The first group measures reliability, and the second group measures value and convenience. Each accounted for half of, an air of the airport's overall score, but how reliable flights were carried the most weight overall. And Sky Harbor, as the Phoenix Airport is known as, had among the fewest flight cancellations of any large airport, much shorter delays than most, and far shorter time spent waiting on the tarmac to take off or gate. So that's how it made it to the top. But Neil, I'm going to need some Phoenix listeners, and in fact, listeners from any of those cities to write in and give their thoughts yeah. on that list. What did you think about it? I, I don't remember the last time I've been to Sky Harbor, but I remember having a pleasant experience. One thing that helps with a lot of the top 10 lists that you decide that you just chose is weather. I mean, that is here in true. the here in the Northeast, so many flights are delayed because in the in the winter you have snow, and in the summer you have these thunderstorms that can wreak havoc on flight schedules. The one thing I noticed about Sky Harbor that I think is kind of an underrated part of an airport is the time it takes from the taxi from the gate to you actually taking off at LaGuardia. I've been in lines of 30 to 35 planes. You're at the other end of the runway and you see all these dozens of planes waiting to take off. And at Sky Harbor, it takes under 15 minutes on average to leave from the gate to you know getting in the air. While at JFK, that's 26 minutes. I think that is an underrated part of an airport because you don't want to be waiting right. on the ground for so long. It's just a tease. Also, another reason Phoenix ranks so high is that nearly 75% of the airport's passengers are local. Yeah. So contrast that with an airport like Charlotte, for instance, where 70% of the, of the passengers are connecting. It just makes for a much more chaotic, hectic environment if everyone is trying to rush to get a connecting flight. It also in, uh, completed a bunch of upgrades for the Super Bowl. So it got a facelift right before this this list came out. Just, and I thought you were gonna mention the golf simulator. Uh, What's the golf They're simulator? They're getting a golf simulator. Oh, thank goodness. I'm going to Phoenix. I've actually never been as well. We're talking about it, but maybe this is a sign to, to go there. Just real quick, I they also ranked the top five mid-sized airports. San Jose is one. San Antonio is two. Sacramento, three. Indianapolis is four. And Houston, five. Any of those stand out to you? I haven't been to any of these no. airports. It's, it's making me realize I got to get out more. Got to get out. Go to San Jose. Got to visit Silicon Valley. We talk about it all the time. Got to go actually tour the place. A little Boots it's not that ground. exciting. It's like suburban paradise. But while we're on the subject of uh, airports and airplanes and aviation, uh, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are thinking about buying trips to the, you know, for vacation over Christmas break. 
there are a lot of good deals to be had right now because air, aircraft uh, aviation industry increased their capacity. They're, they have 260 million seats to fill this quarter. So they're dropping fares like crazy. Southwest is offering deals of $29 one way. So you're not too late if you want to go to San Jose or Phoenix or anywhere else we've talked about for the, for the break. I love when you tell people about the deals. That's news you can use, Neil. That's why you listen to this podcast. All right, let's move on. I would venture to guess that most of you all listening haven't heard of the Puteke Teke bird. But John Oliver certainly has, and he's responsible for it winning New Zealand's Bird of the Century contest. Now, that might have been the most confusing sentence I've ever uttered on the show, but bear with me. New Zealand hosts a Bird of the Year competition annually to raise awareness for the country's native birds. This year was the centennial competition, hence the billing as Bird of the Century. And late night host John Oliver caught wind of this. He discovered a loophole in the rules that allowed anyone from anywhere, not just New Zealand, to cast a vote. So he decided to hit the campaign trail. He picked the Puteke Teke bird, which is this weird puking bird with a colorful bullet, kind of at random, and started literally erecting billboards around the world asking people to vote for his bird, some in New Zealand, other in Paris, Tokyo, London, and Mumbai. He even flew a banner over a beach in Brazil and appeared in a full-size bird's costume on Jimmy Fallon, all in the hopes of securing support for the Puteke Teke to win. Neil, he spent real money on this competition, yeah. and he won. And there was opposition. Other uh, The fans of another type of bird bought a billboard and said, John Oliver, don't disrupt the pecking order, sir. <laughs> No, I, I loved why he picked this uh, this particular bird. One of one reason was because he said uh, it does this mating dance where they both grab a clump of wet grass and chest bump each other before standing around unsure of what to do next. And Oliver said that uh, he had never related to anything more in his life. <laughs> I feel that. So this competition normally attracts just under six, 60,000 votes, but this year it, it uh, attracted 350,000 votes across 195 countries. Um, and with 290,000 of those going to the Puteke Teke bird, there actually has been a ton of controversy in this competition, though. There's been past cases of voter fraud. During the 2018 contest, 300 fraudulent votes were cast in Australia for the shag. And then the next year, there was this onslaught of Russian voters that actually sparked rumors of election meddling. But it turns out that those votes ended up being legitimate. So who knew that there was such a rich history of maybe election meddling and that John Oliver jumped in and blew this thing out of the water. And the organizers love this because it raises yeah. attention to their cause. And they say that 80% of the native birds of New Zealand, which they don't have, you know, bigger mammals. This is Their birds are the things that they love. They love their we birds. We know that they, they're called the Kiwis, obviously. Um, I don't know how the Kiwi doesn't win every year. That's what it was making. It got second this year. So it kind of got run over by John Oliver's. So they love the publicity. But I also just want to call out, this is not the first time a late night show host has kind of put their name in the ring for something super random. This is a, this is a trend that people have been doing. I don't remember, I don't know if you remember back in 2006, Stephen Colbert, there was a competition to name a bridge in Hungary oh. and Chuck Norris was winning because that was the peak of Chuck Norris jokes. So Colbert decided to put his name in the ring and wanted to get the bridge named after himself. And he did win, but then the ambassador to Hungary came on his show and said that to, for them actually to make the bridge named after Colbert, he would have to be fluent in the Hungarian and would have to be deceased. <laughs> So they didn't name it after him, after all. Uh, but this is a tactic that for. Uh, so what should we do? That's what I'm. I'm wondering. I want to name something, or at least run a competition or a campaign. For yeah, someone. we'll have to think about that. Yes, yeah, so, so write us in. 
Thank All right, you. <laughs> that is our show for this Thursday. We're going to miss you tomorrow, Toby. Have a great time wherever you're going. Uh, everyone else, we'll see you back here tomorrow morning. Remember to send us your questions for the Black Friday episode to morningbrewdaily at morningbrew.com. Let's roll the credits. Emily Milliron is our editor and producer. Samantha Velas is our associate producer. Yuchenawa Ogu is our technical director. Billy Menino is on audio. Hair and makeup got lost in the sauce. Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>